Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Gulani. The background of today's guest, Dr. Maria Guevara, perfectly prepared her for combating the COVID pandemic. Her current work as International Medical Secretary of MSF, also known as Doctors Without Borders, is informed by expertise in pulmonary and critical care medicine, extensive experience providing medical care on the ground throughout Africa, the Americas, and Asia, and efforts in global health policy and advocacy. Doctors Without Borders cares for people affected by conflict, disease outbreaks, natural and human-made disasters, and exclusion from healthcare in more than 70 countries. Dr. Guevara is a member of the Independent Allocation Vaccination Group for COVAX and previously advised the WHO on outbreaks and emergencies with health and humanitarian consequences. So Dr. Guevara, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Shiv, to you and your team for this chance to exchange um, and take part. I think what you're providing as a service is brilliant, so congratulations. I just wanted to say, I find it quite funny because I used to fall asleep with those medical reference books, thinking, you know, near my head, thinking that would come through and seep through um, through osmosis, but this way, so much more efficient. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because there's actually a comic when we started osmosis, there's a comic from Garfield where it has Garfield sleeping with textbooks under under Garfield's head. And uh, it says learning by osmosis. And that is ultimately the aim is to make the learning so easy and enjoyable that knowledge can just diffuse into your brain. Love it. Well done. Well, so you have a really impressive background, and many of our audience who listen to this are people who strive to have as much of an impact in global health as, as you have had in your career. So can you first start by giving us uh, and our audience a bit more information about what got you interested in medicine and then particularly critical care? Um, I think I must have always wanted to be a doctor, even since I was in the room of my mom, who was an anesthesiologist um, by training, and my dad was a surgeon. So I must be inhaling those anesthetic gases already. But I remember when they would be taking us to the hospitals to show us around where they work, I would imagine myself in the hospital actually providing care. And I was like, it's so vivid, really, in my mind. And I know I was four years old going, I'm going to be a doctor. Um, and why critical care? I think, you know, um, I just really wanted to take care of the patient from the moment they came into the emergency room all the way, whether they were going to crash and end up in the ICU and when they were, or they would be in the internal medicine ward or in, in the clinics. And I just wanted to be able to do that and work with my hands without being a surgeon. Um, so it was, it was a no-brainer to do that. And I, I guess at the end of the day, I'm an adrenaline junkie. And I think, you know, contrary though to most Asian families, um, my parents actually never showed medicine um, down our throats. But it was really about good education. And they were definitely um, the great role models for that. And I just really wanted to follow their footsteps. That's awesome. That's um, a very relatable to my dad's a. Uh retired general practitioner, my mom's a physical therapist. So it's almost hereditary and that exposure can really have an impact, not just obviously on your life, uh, but then the work you do with MSF or the work my colleagues and I have done with osmosis on, on many more people um, if, if leveraged in the right way. And so, you know, speaking of going from being, um, you know, becoming trained as a critical care physician you know, you, you've had a really storied career in global health and public health. Can you talk to us a bit about MSF, which I know many of the people listening to this 
have these dreams of working with doctors or reporters or volunteering with them at some point. So tell us about your journey with MSF. Well, my journey first to MSF was um, was actually, you know, in that role modeling that I was following in the footsteps of my parents, they would always actually take their holiday breaks, like during Christmas for a couple of weeks in, in, in the foothills of um, the Philippines where cleft palate is quite common, actually. Now I'm just realizing how common that was really about one in 1,000 live births, which is incredible. But it's, it's a reflection of the lack of access to healthcare, right? And, and they would come back with these pictures of how they fixed, you know, repaired cleft lip and palate. And I would just go, wow, they're such heroes. I want to be just like them. And so it was already that bug, right? And I wanted to be a doctor, not just, you know, and I know in, in the U.S. it's a very capitalist kind of thinking around medical care and the health systems. And it wasn't about the money for me. It was really about providing service. And so when I was going through the university, I was looking for a way, how, what would it look like when I became a doctor? Where would I serve? What would I do? And of course, my boyfriend back then had this sticker, his dad's car had this sticker of MSF. And I was like, that was before I spoke French. What is that? What's Médecins Sans Frontières? And there were, oh, he was like, oh, that's Doctors Without Borders. And I was like, okay, one day. I'm going to work with this group that has no borders. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I will do that. And I, I, you know, when I finished my training and I started to practice, I really, I heard, you know, I really wanted to join MSF as soon as I finished training and my, after my fellowship. So I actually signed up and that was, uh, it'll age me here, but it was in 1999. Just when the Nobel, when we were, we now, because I speak that language of MSF, we were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, but I didn't actually go out to the field until 2004 because my father was sick. And, you know, I really wanted to get more training and more practical experience working in private practice, but also um, in academia. And so I was working at the University of Florida where I was in a very close job of working in the internal medicine and then also in the ICU, especially in the anesthesia and surgical care units. And I was it was great, but I all of a sudden had this kind of choking feeling as I sit in my lovely three three a bedroom home with you know my jacuzzi and my lovely luxurious car. And I just was like, if I don't go now, I will regret my life. And I literally gave up and said, I'm gonna I'm gonna join MSF and see what happens. And that was 18 years ago, and I'm still here. And I think, you know, that's a testament of not only for me, but I think the quality of, of or the, the passion that are drawn to join MSF, the people that join MSF really have this kind of calling. And, and we, we, and you, once you're in and you get that bug, it's kind of, it's this incredible virus <laughs> just won't go away. Yeah. COVID jokes aside. <laughs> oh, yeah. No pun intended. I, I can, I mean, that, that's amazing. That's a great story and obviously aligns well with much of the advice that we've heard on this podcast and in general life advice, which is you regret the things you don't do as opposed to the things you do. And, you know, this whole concept of golden handcuffs, right? Like your life can get so uh, kind of cush, as you mentioned, that if you don't do something now, you may not find that motivation to take that risk later and then you'll regret it later. So that's that's inspiring to hear 
that's kind of where, you know, kind of an epiphanic, I don't know if it was one epiphany or took a couple of months for you to, to go and do that. And so what was that like joining, then joining MSF? And like, can you talk to us about some of the most biggest highlights for your personal career there in terms of where you've been deployed and, and what you've, uh, what you're proud of accomplishing? Well, first, you know, 18 years of working with MSF, right? So um, my first job was a volunteer, obviously, and I was sent to Liberia um, right after the three world wars that they called the three world wars, where there was fighting between the two um, rebel groups um, and uh, Charles Taylor, I think this was at the time, deposed them. You know, the whole city of Monrovia, most of Liberia just kind of fell into this this conflict, internal conflict. And we were there to try to provide care. And I was I was stationed in a maternal child health hospital where I I'm an adult home at critical care. So I haven't actually seen kids in my training, but there were all these infectious diseases like malaria, which today is like blood, bread and butter of what we see. But at that time, I've never even seen malaria. So there was this real, you know, exponential growth and understanding and this incredible culture shock. And I think, you know, the first two months is really challenging to adjust. And I almost was like, okay, I'm going back. But then there's one day when we had just gone back on a Friday and then the whole city locks down because there's fighting everywhere and there were riots everywhere. And it took two days for us to actually have a convoy and create this kind of humanitarian corridor for us to get to the hospital we were at. Because over the weekend, it was like burning of houses and all buildings and people. And our maternal child health hospital became this trauma center where our teens, not necessarily trauma care people, were just inundated with this mass casualty. So we desperately tried to get all the MSF people uh, in a row to try to, uh, to try to access them. And I remember driving in this convoy in this road that was so busy just two days before with gas stations burnt down, nobody there. And then you just hear this mob somewhere and you're like going down, going, it was that moment you go, right, this is why I'm here and this is why it's relevant. And when we got there, Ah, the experienced MSF people were just going, okay, that one triage, that, that, that. And I went, oh, right, that's what I want to do. And I was sold. And, you know, fast forward to the different moments that I've seen in working in conflict, et cetera. You know, Congo was very um, a formative moment for me um, in that sense that I was there maybe, what, in 2007, um, eight, and then I was back in 2018, literally 10 years later, when there was the Ebola outbreak. But there was this fighting, and you just see this evolution of an incredible community and country, and yet still caught in conflict and just having to address all kinds of outbreaks right and left, including conflict, including you know, natural disasters. But probably the most challenging moment was in South Sudan when I was in Juba in 2016, where there was the moment when there was fighting on that Independence Day. And we were, I was trying to negotiate access to some cholera samples because there was this burgeoning cholera outbreak in the city. And 
I was supposed to meet the Ministry of Health. And um, literally, again, in the one moment to the next, I'm they're saying, come, come quick. And so we're driving down Ministries Road, which was a normal road. And you have the Parliament and the White House. And then you just see this, like, armies lining the road. And I'm going to the driver going, are they uh, sentient? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, sure. But I mean, literally with guns facing each other. And then I was like, okay, on the way back, go to another ro- road. And within 30 minutes of getting back, the fighting started, right? And locked down. And I knew that it was this moment of when you see the gunshot so close, you kind of go, hmm, right. But that's when the adrenaline comes in and you just mobilize. And the moment they called for ceasefire, we were out doing explode, seeing where the people have run to, how to set up mobile clinics. It's it's an incredible feeling and so real and so pertinent in such a setting. And I think, you know, it's a reflection of where MSF is today. And for those who may or may not know MSF, Maison Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, it's we're quite independent in of an international medical organization. And obviously we were founded in 1971 in the wake of the Biafra War in Nigeria. So we're actually celebrating our 50 years of existence today or this year, right? But part of the work that we do is obviously addressing um, those people who are most vulnerable, caught in conflict, epidemics, natural or man-made disasters, right? As you've said, and we're in over 70 countries with over 46,000 members today we started off with 300 in 1971 today we're we're a huge workforce with 80 percent of that local and that is driven by medical ethics obviously and the humanitarian principles especially neutrality impartiality of actually accessing where there is most need and the independence and that independence is critical um because it's independence from any political affiliation, independence from any economic affiliation. And, you know, we're lucky that today, 97% of our funds come from the individual, 7 million donors of private. Because there's something about being able to say to rebel groups who asks, who are you affiliated with? Um, and we say, no, we are a private. Um, we don't have any state affiliations or, or part of a political agenda. We are here to do the work that we do. And that um, contract with the community is so critical in maintaining our safety and security. And that was very evident already in the work, you know, I just told the story of, of Liberia, even Congo, but even South Sudan, because that neutrality was critical in keeping us safe and secure and being able to access the populations and provide access to health care for them. But that so where I am today in my role in those 18 years of growing up in MSF is um, trying to actually lead this next 50 years of reflection. You know, maybe it's too strong to say it's this reckoning that we're going through to understand how we can do better our work, how to be more relevant and more purposeful. And what does the next 50 years look like for us? And that's part of the work that I do in a trio. I work with the Secretary General and the international present today, but it's it's really how do we drive that voice and, and be as effective as we can, knowing that the emergencies of the future are gonna be incredibly complex and compounded and just cascading one upon the other. And we see that today more and more. 
that's incredible. I mean, uh, the stories, thanks for sharing, sharing those uh, stories. And then also the size and scope of MSF, which is uh, mind blowing in 50 years, how much, how much you all have grown and how much grassroots support there is for, for MSF. I'm curious too, like, um, you know, obviously the last two years have accelerated a lot of trends in healthcare. That's one of the main reasons we launched this podcast. And we keep hearing about how uh, unprepared our public health system in the U.S. has been for COVID, let alone internationally. You know, what what is your kind of assessment of the state of global health, uh, particularly in light of the pandemic and your involvement with COVAX? Because I feel like it's kind, of, it's kind of gone out of the news. People are tired of COVID. You know, obviously, I don't think the answers were fully prepared for the next pandemic at all. But, you know, how 18 years dedicated to global health, public health, what, what does the next, you know, uh, 18 years look like in your assessment? What, what do we need to do to make it more prepared? <laughs> well, um, gosh, that's a big question. Um, you know, I, you know, before I actually became the international medical secretary, I was, also, I was holding the different dossiers. One was as senior advisor in global health issues. And before that I was representing in Asia, but also, um, the coordinator for that tax and healthcare portfolio. So, very much entrenched in the global health agenda that was, you know, as you could see, that was coming in the last decade, right? Global health as a discipline just started really coming in the last decade or so, right? Um, it's been public health, international health, but the globalization of the world has made it a reality. And unfortunately, our mechanisms today um, that are called human systems are failing, right? Failure of governance, failure of knowledge, failure of imagination. And this, and the way we used, when we created what they call the multilateral systems, like the United Nations. So if you were to look up uh, Wikipedia and look up United Nations, you know, it says it's a intergovernmental organization. It's supposed to maintain international peace and security, achieve international cooperation, center for home and harmonizing nations. And you're like, great concept right noble intention but unfortunately it's failing why many reasons but i think it's it's a great limiting step is the willingness of the individual nations to play together and that tension between nationalism and multilateralism is really some of the core right and some of it is a lot of this multilateral mechanisms are also beholden to the funding and the support of such nations and when those tensions come face to face and COVID is very much that, but also if you were to look at the next global health threat of the, of the century, which is climate change, which is ongoing since before COVID, but probably related to why we are seeing COVID, it's really highlighting that, you know, there, there are all these issues that is just really complex and it's really hard to tell one nation to prioritize another and you can't right there's this kind of sovereignty so part of the global health system or global health or just global world is challenged because of this inherent tensions and what we're seeing is just this incredible structural violences that are coming up of health inequalities disparities and equities front and center and there's just a lot of lip service to try to work together and if, if there's anything working in emergency. There's nothing amazing than an emergency driving people together. So there was this hope that COVID, which I think is just this, um, people might shoot me down. It actually is, is an opportunity. You know, we're, we're getting dress rehearsals 
on a regular basis to see how we can fix ourselves. It's like Mother Earth is saying, I'm going to teach you, <laughs> learn, but we're still struggling. But it's really highlighting the need to be sol to have solidarity and to work collectively. And this is, you know, and what does it mean to do that? And what is the concept of equity in and trying to secure health for all? Sometimes our narratives fall. Um, we don't have the proper words and framing to do it. Like global health security is failing because we, we have a different framing of this and understanding. And I think the experience from COVAX is, it's the same, right? It is this beautiful intention to try to address this inequity, but it's failing because it's using the same failed human systems to create that. It's so dependent on nation states, but it's also dependent on those philanthropic or the big global health foundations that are also dependent on nations and all donors. And, and that framing is very market-based. It's really related to our ne neoliberal capitalistic drive for this constant drive for economic growth, which is maybe the way we need to rephrase that. So I've always said at the core of our work at MSF is humanitarian crisis, but sadly, it's about fighting the fallout of this much larger crisis of humanity that we all are facing. We, we've somehow lost that social fabric of what does it mean to be a community, human, human community. And I think there's an existential question here that we need to address, but I think, anyways, I can go off. Um, I'll stop there for now. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, I think you've nailed it with some of the things and, and even in the US we've had trouble, as you know, uh, bolstering the public health system in the wake of COVID. We've got, like, it seems like uh, the government's forgotten, moved on to other crises or other domestic or international issues. So it is a challenge. And obviously, there's still a lot of talk around, you know, I know Bill Gates came up with his book most recently about how we can address the next pandemic and, you know, develop this surveillance system. Um, so it seems like there's still organizations trying to do this. They're, they're going to be investing a lot more. The Gates Foundation will be. But there's other, obviously, other individuals who are really motivated to make sure this doesn't happen as much. And so speaking of what individuals can do, you know, obviously, our audience are current and future healthcare professionals. Many of them are or want to be volunteers for MSF and other organizations that do good work around the world. What would be um, ways that they can get involved, you know, donations, volunteering that you would recommend for our audience? And then also, what's your advice to them about, you know, meeting the challenges of, of this state uh, of global health and public health affairs? Sure. I mean, I think um, donors, obviously, I just said 17 million of, in, of, of um, individual donors. It, that's a no brainer and grateful to the support that we get. At least 59 percent of our work is actually in conflict setting and is super critical. So that's one. But two is understanding it's our future, right? Your your audience is our future, our volunteers, and we need them to carry the mission of making healthcare accessible, accessible to all. But it requires understanding of not only what it means to provide direct patient care, but really understanding that landscape that you work in. And I think that was something that I learned in MSF was you know, I was very much working in, you know, high-end University of Florida, Chance Hospital, right? Very high-end technical and direct care. But at MSF, you cannot help but have to focus in the community because it's this patient care and public health tension. And it's so critical today in a low, 
you know, where the local and global kind of intersects. And I think we need to educate ourselves around that um, and be as broad-minded as possible, looking beyond your 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 own siloed education. And then three is a voice. I mean, I think if there's anything, you know, that we learned through COVID, um, even despite the attacks of and mistrust of science, there's still this belief of doctors and medical workers, you know, um, and the voice that that carries. We need to empower that voice and to be enraged by what we see in our emergency rooms, et cetera, that's linked to all the disasters. And, and it's a powerful voice. We need to amplify that. So wherever you might be working in your emergency room, I mean, today your voice is just as powerful and can be a galvanizing force. And then lastly, to the question of challenges of today, I mean, I, you know, as a, a, a leader in MSF today, I mean, it, I, I'm really involved in trying to understand what does it mean to work in a well-being um, state, to understand what that means, um, to be to be more self-conscious of my own self-regulation and how to stay calm, collected and be courageous, creative and curious have to maintain that. And it's really putting the inner world on the as a priority. What does that mean for you? Self-regulating yourself, because without the, everything starts there. So I take that moment to self-care, meditate, yoga, exercise, whatever it is that makes you ground yourself. It's critical in this in, incredibly changing world um, and this ecosystem that we live in, this planet Earth, you know, and get involved in planetary health and understand your your role in that and in a in a very centered way so uh, those are my little pieces of that's great i mean i think really will resonate with many of the themes we've heard and increasingly important because obviously one of the negative one of many negative things that this pandemic has done is accelerate a lot of the moral injury or burnout i know of the the healthcare workforce and made some of the systems that we use to provide healthcare untenable, right? Financially untenable. So trying to figure out how how to how to rebuild and strengthen the healthcare workforce is a core priority that keeps coming up on this podcast. I'm respectful of your time. I know we're coming up on it, um, and and we're recording this. You're in Geneva right now, uh, so I know it's getting a little later there. But um, I'm curious. Uh, two other questions, if you don't mind. The the first is, as you know, Osmosis is a health education company. We care a lot about uh, filling in knowledge gaps. If you could snap your fingers and train, you know, this next generation of healthcare professionals or, or current generation of healthcare professionals on one or two concepts, uh, what would it be? So other than medical humanitarian action and what does that really mean about humanitarian principles and what is humanitarian action? The other topic that I'm really passionate about is planetary health. And I mentioned it briefly already, but, you know, I think, because I'm so passionate beyond MSF, I'm, I'm pushing, you know, different initiatives and working with, with, um, some very bright people in, in Asia Pacific where I had represented before and created this initiative on, on planetary health and integrating it, basically mainstreaming it in our education system and the university curricula, but also especially in medical schools. It's based in Sunway University in Malaysia, but what is really important is, as I mentioned about the failures of the human systems, it's at the core of planetary health. It's where human responsibility, we are part of this ecosystem that we call Earth. And the fact that we're experiencing 
emerging infectious diseases, um, pollution, massive climate change, et cetera. It's part because we are at fault. And, you know, we know that the IPCC, which is the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, you know, they publish these analysis and reports and they, they've done it. Their sixth report just came out. And basically they're saying, yes, we are, we humans are responsible and this is an emergency and we need to do something about it because it's affecting the most vulnerable. It's at the core of what MSF does. And I think, you know, if you can, if this kind of knowledge of how do we see ourselves within an ecosystem, whether that's in a local public health way or a global health way, but within a planetary health realm, I think we need to educate the future work, health workforce to understand how we are actually quite connected globally. And I would help encourage this. I would want to encourage this. And if you need any kind of collaborations, I'm not happy to volunteer. Yeah, we'd definitely love to follow up. And that's one reason we like to ask the question is, you know, we, we have this uh, platform and engine for creating content that we'd love to be able to apply that and you know, doing a lot of diversity, equity, inclusion content, doing a lot of uh, public health content, obviously, but planetary. I mean, the, obviously, our audience tends to skew younger and they'll hopefully be around, you know, for the next few decades when many of these things are going to be staring us right in the face. They already are with the climate. I mean, I think yesterday we had a guest from London on the podcast and it was 40 degrees Celsius in London, the hottest day in recorded history. And that's not a place that has a lot of air conditioning. So and that's a, obviously a, one of the most most developed countries. So in any case, um, this the last question I have is, is there anything else you wish I'd asked you about that you'd like to get across to our audience? I, I, I guess it's more about understanding who you are as uh, why you yourself joined or are being is, uh, decided to be a health professional. And I think, you know, if there's anything I learned through these years was, um, it's this passion to serve, I think. And if you know that's who you are, you can't go wrong. And I think it's following that light within. I would just wanted to send that message out. And if we can establish or reinforce these kind of principles and this moral values and ethics within ourselves and propagate this kind of, of um, stance and, and perspective, um, then we will go a long way in addressing the crisis that we see today. It's a very positive note to end on. And, uh, you know, Dr. Guevara, I really appreciate not only you taking the time to be with us on the podcast, but more importantly for, you know, your career and the, uh, what you've dedicated to improving public and global health um, at MSF and, and beyond. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And with that, I'm Shiv Glani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.